Welcome to The Futurists with Ben Rohde and Alex Lightman. Today, our special guest is Daniel Schmachtenberger, who is the Director of Research for the Neurohacker Collective. I love the name Neurohacker Collective. The idea is, as far as we'll hear today, to bring together some of the best uh, science and insights into how to make humans smarter and how to do a variety of things. So let me uh, first introduce my co-host, Ben Rohde. Say hello, hello Ben. Hello. Hey. And also, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. And I want to say, too, that this is a special show because it's our first show that we're doing while Ben is in a hurricane. So <laughs> Ben Costa Rica, and I'm in Santa Monica. And Ben, um, neither rain nor snow, not, not that he'd have that much snow, but he does live on a mountain. Uh, neither rain nor snow nor dark of night will keep Ben Rohde from doing the Futurist show. It must be, it must be something I picked up as a mailman. And um, I, I think that I think it's, it's interesting. And we spent the last 30 minutes trying to get the technology here. So I think like the running joke right now is how many futurists does it take to get to be able to record a damn show? Um, yes. So, and so, yeah, so we're, we're also we're pre-recording this show. It's it's uh, 745 p.m. for me because uh, Daniel is a vampire, has a vampire schedule. And so I'm excited to hear about that at some point. Um, and I'm, I'm, I read in your bio that, about your vampire schedule and it says, so as long as you're able to meet Daniel halfway, um, <laughs> we'll get a lot out of it. So here we are meeting, uh, meeting the vampire at night and I'm excited to uh, bite into this topic. So first question, um, uh, we, we know about what's, uh, Daniel, what is biohacking? And then within biohacking, what is neurohacking? So <clears throat> biohacking and neurohacking are both uh, uh, kind of amorphous and emerging terms. Uh, biohacking has been you know, very popularized with uh, Bulletproof and Dave Asprey and Tim Ferriss and uh, people like that helping its emergence. And, you know, it very much relates to performance enhancement through any methodology. It relates to kind of integrative medicine and wellness, but from a slightly different perspective of uh, rather than working on the disease model side of it, what can we do on the fundamental wellness support and enhancement side of it, which has some crossover with uh, prevention on the disease side. And there's some kind of idea with regard to hacking that it is a other than establishment approach to uh, how to do this. So this is not, biohacking is not emerging out of pharma and FDA sanctioned kind of science. It's emerging out of citizen science, out of uh, piecing together science from different places for kind of grander hypotheses out of the fields of uh, elite sports and performance enhancement and all like that. <clears throat> and neurohacking correspondingly is, you could think of it as a subset of biohacking or you could think of it in kind of a Venn diagram. The way we think about neurohacking is uh, really being able to hack the mind-brain interface to be able to optimize people's cognitive and uh, psychological well-being and capabilities. So how do we enhance human experience and enhance human capacity cognitively, psychologically, through both physiological and psychological techniques and processes? Daniel, what, would, uh, what do you think are the biggest successes to date of biohacking or neurohacking? 
Oh, I like this question. Well, I th it's, it's a good question. Uh, I think since these are kind of newer spaces in the way that they are emerging, some of their success is that they are actually emerging spaces where people are uh, finding solutions to kind of elite performance that didn't exist in the medical world, that some of the knowledge that had been in very niche worlds is becoming more popularly available. And that in kind of the overlap with the integrative medicine world, people are finding solutions to better health that they had not found uh, elsewhere. And I would say in better health and well-being, I would say that there are some good successes across a number of different verticals, whether we're talking about athletics and weight and fitness or sleep optimization or uh, you know, cognitive optimization. I, I think there's actually a number of meaningful things that have happened in all those spaces. Well, I'd like to tell our audience one stat in case you're thinking, oh, this is kind of cute. It's nice. It's just having fun. This, folks, this is deadly serious. You know when the last time, I bet Daniel knows this, the last time that the FDA approved a drug for Alzheimer's. Do you know when that was? I'm going to say no for everybody. <laughs> okay. It was 2003. It was 13 years ago. So here we have the group of people with Alzheimer's. It's one of the fastest growing populations in the world. And it's, it's exploding. And we have not been, we haven't approved a drug. Now, this show uh, takes place post Donald Trump being elected president of the United States. And I think one of his most interesting proposals is that he says there are 4,000 drugs awaiting approval at the FDA, and he wants to accelerate that. So what I see is that, that there's a tremendous pent-up demand for a better, faster, cheaper, more effective, less, uh, less industrial, uh, less orthodox way of approaching health and achievement of human potential. So Daniel, what, uh, what do you think that we're doing wrong, and what do we need to be doing better as a society and what role do does, does neurohacking and the neurohacker uh, collective play in this? That's a lot of big questions. Um, I want to just kind of speak to the drug discovery and approval process and the regulatory processes for a moment. Um, I think we do need to take uh, a major step forward in how we do medicine and how we do wellness, but it is getting to take an evolutionary step that is standing on the shoulders of previous successes rather than um, things that didn't make any sense. When you think about the history of the FDA, we have the FDA really gaining you know, a lot of necessary traction after thalidomide when a drug that did work for morning sickness and pregnancy got moved forward too quickly and caused meaningful birth defects. So there's this question of if you have delayed causation and uh, very meaningful side effects. How much of a longitudinal study do you need to do? How big of a group needs studied on to know if there are rare but very serious effects? So these are not trivial issues. Um, and so there is a purpose for appropriate methodology that we very much respect. Uh, and I would say the current system has a number of limitations. When we're looking at, for instance, animal trials, there's a number of places where the data we're getting from animal trials really doesn't cross over into human biology well enough. And it is a, it's both scientifically and ethically not the best of how we can do it moving forward. As we start to get into personalized medicine and wanting to be able to address an individual person's health 
uniquely differently based on their genome, based on their whole history of life and exposure, their microbiome than we would someone else, clinical trials aren't an adequate way to know how to do that because we're not going to be looking at one drug intervention. We're going to be looking at some weighted combination of a number of different things that might have never been used in exactly that ratio for exactly this person before. So getting into N equals one optimization is a totally different kind of science and being able to do more decentralized science, synthesize what we know across so many spaces uh, and include citizen science. And I think these are all parts of some of the next steps of, uh, of scientific evolution that have to happen. Great. So if, uh, if this is the future of medicine, what does this look like? I think the biggest thing that I would speak to regarding the future of medicine, because there's going to be evolutions in diagnostic technologies, evolutions in therapeutic technologies, both on the uh, surgical acute medicine and on the chronic uh, you know, health side, as well as evolutions in um, neural hacking, biohacking for elite optimization and for radical life extension. There's going to be technological solutions in all those areas. The thing that I think is most significant is how it all fits together, which is a, a fundamentally upgraded model for understanding what health and wellness and biological resilience is and understanding what illness is, how illness happens in, an, in a more complex and complete way that uh, doesn't have autoimmune diseases and neurodegen and so many cancers um, underexplained, but actually can have detailed and personalized explanations for these things that lead to cause level solutions. And so if we want to dive in a little bit deeper, I can talk about what I think and what we're working on as an emerging adequate model for understanding health optimization and disease prevention and reversal. I would love that. I just want to make a quick comment because some people in our audience will not have heard the, uh, the phrase or term citizen science. So citizen science is this emerging area that actually returns us to some of the golden ages of, of science when people were at home experimenting in their own laboratories. You know, the, the discovery of oxygen happened in a home laboratory, et cetera. Um, I chaired a conference on citizen science, the rise of the citizen science, scientist in 2010 at Harvard. That was the first international conference on the topic. And one of my favorite examples is people discovering stars and galaxies, Galaxy Zoo, you know, sort of an open source way of, of classifying things. And also uh, folding at home, going and using people's spare computing power to do um, basically go and doing protein uh, experiments and, and analysis that would take uh, large numbers of people and cost tens of millions of dollars to do, but volunteers can do it. Um, uh, also, a woman went to Burger King once, who was a chemist, and they were giving away all these free colored glasses, and she took one at home, crushed it, and then she found that it was toxic. And so with all the scientists and all the regulatory agencies one person who didn't, who wasn't the right person in the right place at the right time, saved millions of people from being exposed to toxins. Uh, and I would just give um, one more example of why citizen scientists, uh, citizen science is vital. Right now, there's a big debate about uh, Trump's uh, appointment of Myron Ebel, I think, 
to be the new head of the Environmental Protection Agency transition. And people are saying, oh my God, it's gonna, we're gonna reduce protections. The fact is that the EPA only tracks 13 chemicals and fracking has been used for 150,000 wells or more, and it has 500 chemicals. So I don't see the federal government, I think this is a great metric we can look at. The federal government with all of its power and money and four trillion a year is only tracking 13 chemicals out of 500, but many of those other ones are toxic. So citizen science is one of the most important movements to protect our health and to come up with new innovations that we can that we that we have. So um, I appreciate you bringing that up. And uh, now we can go back to the to what Neurohacker Collective is doing. And I I can't wait to hear. When in the health and medicine and human biology space in particular, the rise of quantified self. So all the different kind of tracking devices and you know wearables where we can track heart rate variability or GSR or so many things. And the rise of uh, app software for tracking cognitive metrics, psychometrics, um, people's ability to test their own well-being, and even hardware for people to, you know, test glucose more regularly or ketones or anything at home. And there's a huge trend in these kinds of uh, decentralized medical technologies and wellness technologies emerging. This doesn't give us traditional placebo-controlled clinical randomized research, but it does give us meaningful data over very huge data sets that we can do statistical analysis on as that data starts to be shared in meaningful and structured ways. So I think one of the reasons that we have this rise of citizen science is uh, that we have so much more access to actually scientific tools, decentralized scientific tools, and then access to information processing that we didn't have previously in the form of like you're mentioning advanced computational capabilities to do protein folding and you know one of the things for instance that our uh, company's working on right now is an app that can synthesize biometrics and psychometrics from many different sources into one platform and then not only look at those biometrics with regard to you know where the numbers at on a reference range, but where all the numbers are at in relationship to each other, factoring all the complex causation that's known about. Wow, I'm just, I'm listening to, so when I listen to you talk, I, I notice the way that your brain works, that, that like I, I'm imagining being inside of your brain and, and I, the way that you speak is so like, you have, it's so technical and it's so academic and I remember I'm thinking about reading your your bio, and uh, one of your bios that I really liked was um, you said I didn't have to unlearn all the stuff that basically everybody's taught through the current education system, and that you were raised on Buckminster Fuller and and uh, just all these amazing great minds, and so I'm I'm just. I'm, 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 I'm appreciating that in you. And, and, and so um, I, I don't want to change the subject. If, if Alex has another question about, about this, and I do want to get into this because I ordered some of your, uh, I, I got on the monthly plan because um, my friend uh, Daniel Raphael highly recommended it and he said it changed his life forever. And so, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to getting my, my first shipment. And so I have, I have, I have more questions about that, but, um, I, I would like to hear about your just the, the way that you see the world like 
Like, how do you see the future and how do you create the future that maybe most people, most people's brains don't work like this? We could have a conversation sometime on the future of education. I, I did have this unique, fortunate uh, childhood where my parents were educational theorists and they wanted to run an educational experiment. And this was before the term unschooling, uh, which has kind of evolved since then, which was raising us without any curriculum at all, but exposing us to everything that they could expose us to in terms of different topics. This, and is, cool. this is what we're doing with our kids. Awesome. And then, yeah, they were just seeing where there were areas of interest and seeing how to facilitate them. So I didn't, you know, I didn't learn whole areas of uh, spelling, grammar, American history that one would normally learn, have illegible handwriting, but I did get to dive much more deeply into the sciences and into activism and into uh, many world philosophies uh, than one would otherwise have the opportunity to do. And because I didn't have subject divisions, I didn't think of the world in compartmentalized ways or conversation would move between neuroscience and then looking at what's actually happening at an atomic level, understanding where those So astrophysics to complexity science for how to put it together for deeper underlying, you know, philosophy around reductionism and mind brain interaction. That was just one conversation called how do we go about adequately understanding the nature of reality? And, so when you, what that means in terms of uh, overarching perspective is whether we're talking about social issues or environmental issues or human biology issues, one of the core things that I think that we are not doing adequately currently is understanding all of the various areas of uh, interconnectedness and layers of cause and effect. So when we're dealing with climate change and we're talking about carbon taxes or whatever kind of approaches for climate change that don't get to fundamentally what all really has to happen to address not emitting greenhouse gases and sequestering them adequately. And so you look at why is sequestration decreased of what are all the ways that we cause deforestation, damage to, uh, you know, any kind of photosynthesis on land on in water dead zones and oceans and you think about all of the different kinds of agricultural fluence industrial fluence that are involved the economic drivers of it the underlying economic drivers underneath the you know energy economy an adequate solution involves a lot of things and so we mostly do kind of a symptomatic approach that doesn't deal with the whole causal taxonomy and that's the same in medicine and so this is actually very interesting when we talk about why the systems have to evolve is when we have a for-profit medical system where ultimately patients are customers and the, you know, maximizing the lifetime value of patients means maximizing lifetime value of customers, which is something that when you're doing the numbers of running a business is an automatic kind of calculation. If we can figure out how to address symptoms, there's obviously more duration in that profit stream than preventing things from happening at all or quick cures are. So it's like, where do the R and D budgets even go? There's where there is fiscal incentive for the wrong things where you have some of the most powerful organizations in the world have their own ongoing existence and the health well-being of everyone not aligned. And, you know, from an economic perspective, it's not their fault as organizations. It's a structural issue 
where you can say theory of markets really shouldn't apply. Yeah, well, medicine. they have shareholders to to please and all this. So, so now you were you were you were mentioning ways that people at home will be able to monitor their own blood sugar and their their own health and and like devices that will uh, tell you what's in your food. So, what's the you know? I've seen a lot of different devices that do a lot of different things, but what's the most comprehensive device that if I had one device that would do everything, is this, has this been invented? Is it being invented? I think I saw a Kickstarter campaign of a device that looked like it was going to do this. It like read your palm, or like took a reading from some skin on your palm or something. And like, what well, you know, this is one of the really big X prizes right now is for the tricorder devices and the tricorder uh, medical devices are both, for being able to do, you know, medical diagnostics in rural places where you don't otherwise have access to uh, formal medical diagnostics, but it's also for at-home diagnosis and assessment. The the one that I think is probably most promising so far is the gene radar technology. It's at least one of the best ones that uh, Anita Gohl and group from NanoBiosim have developed, which has the ability to look at... Uh, pathogens specifically with better accuracy than PCR analysis, but without needing to draw blood just on a drop of blood. And that, and then they'll be able to move beyond pathogens. Most likely the key is moving from needing chemical reagents to study the blood to actually being able to study the blood on a chip. So you can study many more things accurately with much less blood and much less turnaround time and processing involved. I think there are metabolomic solutions for sweat for urine, et cetera, that can move from chemical reagents to uh, processing on chips that are emerging that are going to be really transformational. And one of the areas that I personally have uh, a lot of belief in that's in the very early stages is laser interferometry for being able to (laughs) actually just find beams of light into the, you know, through the skin into the blood. And then based on the chemistry of the blood, you get different diffraction patterns. You can read the diffraction patterns and as we learn the diffraction patterns of more molecules, we could theoretically get the ability to assess almost everything that's happening in the blood in real time. Uh, and you can start to imagine what it means to have continuous data on an individual person processing in real time on the cloud where we can really separate and, and across a huge number of biometrics where we can really separate correlation and causation because we can see which things change first And so we can get big data on a single person and then also across many people and start to get very early predictive analysis for things and start moving towards really customized, personalized medicine. Wow, yeah. It may sound like it's like it's instrumental overkill, but Daniel makes a very good point. Um, I asked this question. I have a bunch of questions that I like to ask people that nobody ever gets right. And one of them I I ask is uh, how many chemical reactions are happening in your body, you know, you can pick whatever period of time, but if I say per second, nobody ever gets it. Like some people say 10, some people say 100, uh, but the real answer is uh, there are basically, there are a, a trillion, a, tri- a trillion chemical, a trillion chemical reactions per second. Yeah, it's, we, you know, we don't know how to estimate this appropriately. And every time we think we do, we, have another discovery not that long after where it goes up by some orders of magnitude, but 
a trillion metabolic functions per second per cell is a current reasonable estimate. Jeez. And Hard um, <laughs> then when you start thinking about, you know, time synchrony across those, and then when you start thinking about subchemical, right, information processing uh, that might be happening, it's, it's a lot of information. And that's one of the things that really we have to understand about human physiology is that it's a self-organizing complex system and complex systems and complicated systems are very different. Complicated systems like a circuit board are not self-organizing. They are designed from the outside. They're not fundamentally adaptive and they don't have causal closure all over all of the input output feedback loops. So self-organizing systems are a very unique thing and understanding them actually requires a different kind of scientific approach where you can't remove the variables understand them in isolation, put them back together and think you understand it well, because the variables, because of combinatorics, they actually do different things in relationships than they do separately. And the synergy ends up being like, like the cell respirates, even though no molecules that make up the cell respirate on their own. It's a synergistic emergent property of that ordered complexity. And so a reductionist approach will give you partial, but fundamentally inadequate information. So when we look at neurodegeneration or any of the kind of complex diseases part of it is that we can't split the body up into uh neurology and oncology and gastroenterology and because gastroenterology we can see gut brain access stuff microbiome disorders that are causing neurologic issues the system is too interconnected to be separated that way there are bottom-up processes controlled by genetics and top-down processes con controlled by neuroendocrine process and connectomics that interact with each other to create these very dynamic nonlinear equilibriums. We have to kind of understand how all those things work and how all the different variables operate differently in relationship. And so this is why complexity science is really necessary for understanding biosystems well. And then when you start thinking about not just biosystems, but biopsychoenvironmental systems, where your body is affecting your psychology, but your psychology is affecting your body in turn through kind of psychoneuroimmunological interactions and your environment is affecting you and vice versa. To really understand those needs a, a, a different framework for understanding complex causation. And that's actually what I think is at the core of the future of medicine is, and it's where we take incurable diseases where we don't actually understand the cause. And it's because the cause is not the same thing every time. The cause can be very different things mm -hmm. for this. So two different people's MS doesn't necessarily have the same cause. We can find statistical correlations of specific pathogens like Borrelia burgdorferi, which has some correlation in Lyta Matman's work, or certain funguses that have correlation, or certain neurotoxins, either heavy metals or organophosphates, or certain genetics, or certain kind of nutritional deficiencies. But the reason that none of them are one-for-one one correlations is because there's a number of different deviations from homeostasis that can lead to the kinds of pathophysiology and causal cascades that lead to those tissues and systems having those kinds of disorders. And so we need a, an adequate map of how multifactorial complex causal cascades work to then be able to do differential diagnosis across them to find out exactly what weighted combination of which factors are involved for which people and then being able to customize both medicine and optimization for them. Okay, so paint me a picture. What does this look like? Like, let's say there's somebody at their house, they want to figure out what's my health look like and or what caused my MS um, <laughs> and what can I do about it? 
And so like, what, what does this machine do? This, this gene, uh, this gene machine, like, what does it do? How do they use it? And how does it like paint a picture for us that just creates like that would create the value proposition that would make us say, Oh, I get it. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. So, um, what I'm talking about right now is actually diagnostics, complex system diagnostics and interpretation based on modeling and based on understanding more complexly causation in where the causation is not obvious. So causation with a gunshot is obvious, right? There are certain things where we have very clear causation, then we know how to, how to treat it. But when we're dealing with very delayed causation where some some cause happens and the effect doesn't happen in any obvious way for a long time. That's actually tricky. Or when there are multiple causes that actually all kind of have a confluence together into an emergent set of phenomena, that's tricky. Or when something has a cause in one system and then is affecting a different system or different set of tissues, those require a different understanding of how cause and effect works. And so um, I would say like this, think about, uh, in order to give you the value prop, I actually need to explain the model a little bit and then it'll make sense. So think about what our bodies are as these complex adaptive systems, these regulatory systems. They're basically regulating your temperature and your pH and the levels of so many different uh, you know, biomarkers and processes. So it's a, it's a homeostatic regulatory, dynamic regulatory system where all the different regulatory axes are interacting with each other to make this adaptive system. And then we can define illness and uh, decreased health in terms of, we can think about aging and decreased health as decreased resilience of the homeostatic system, decreased regulatory capacity, because either there is less range that can be regulated over or less uh, ability to move disequilibrious movements out of homeostasis back into homeostasis quicker. And so one of the things we want to do is to support the underlying homeostatic, not the homeostasis of the system, the levels of where things are, what your cholesterol levels are. This is less interesting than supporting the homeostatic capacity of the system to self-regulate so many things in dynamic equilibrium with each other in relationship to what's actually happening in the environment. So we want to, and this is, you know, this is how do we support things like cellular energy and, you know, the ATP production process. How do we support things like autophagy and all of the, all of the aspects of just how homeostasis happens systemically. And this is kind of, we can think about as prevention of illness and supporting life extension. And then we can also think about illness as wherever there's some deviations from homeostasis that exceed the homeostatic capacity of the system to stay within physiologic ranges. And then the result is pathophysiology, changed physiologic function uh, that starts to create pathology. And so when we think about it that way, we'd say, okay, so before someone gets a particular autoimmune disease, we can see that certain inflammatory markers elevate. So we can say inflammation caused it, but something caused the inflammation. Something caused the hormone imbalance, whatever. Those are intermediary markers, so they're part of a causal cascade, but they're never going to be the tier one deviation from homeostasis because they're messenger molecules. 
And so you have to say, you know, what was their initial stimulus? And the initial tier one deviation from homeostasis for any complex system is always going to be some overarching behavior of the system or some interface of the system with its environment that's not aligned with what its regulatory system can process. And so if we say an interaction with the environment, we mean if, it, if the system, if the body takes in too much of something that it can't process, we call that toxicity or pathogenicity. Or if it takes in not enough of something, we call it deficiency. These are tier one deviations or if the, if the system doesn't exercise enough or doesn't sleep enough or uh, you know, bad posture, those are overarching behaviors of the system that are not aligned with, again, what its homeostatic systems evolved to be able to process and work with. So we can actually formally identify all of the tier one causes, and then we can sub-taxonomize everything that happens, all the toxins, all the pathogens, all the nutrient deficiencies, all the genetic disorders, et cetera, and then we can look at all the causal cascades. And then this gives us the ability to say, these are the things we're looking to do diagnostics. We want to look at both what's happening at a causal cascade level, inflammatory markers, hormones, et cetera, and at an initial cause level, path, uh, you know, pathogenicity, toxicity, deficiency, et cetera. Can you still hear me? Yeah, you're doing great. And then... Um, so this starts to give us a basis for both wellness optimization, prevention, and then when someone has a specific illness, being able to identify specifically what's going on and how to reverse those deviations from homeostasis while non-specifically, generally increasing system resil resilience and robustness. So what would that mean from a you know, visualize it, practical point of view, it means if you actually think about how many different kinds of medical assessment we have, and just even, if I'm even just talking about blood markers and not looking at electrophysiology or anything else, between all of the rheumatologic assessment and toxicologic assessment and metabolomics and, and you know, all the omics, right? Transcriptomics, genetics, et cetera, there, Right now, it's a tremendous amount of blood from different labs that has to be drawn with a lot of cost and you know, accuracy issues on many of them. If you th start thinking about what it would mean to be able to get all of that data, and oftentimes you think, well, that data is not relevant for the kind of condition I have. That's one of the things that we find that is not the case, is that the system is so much more interconnected that in sometimes why we're saying it's an idiopathic illness, meaning we don't understand you know, why it's happening is because we're not looking at the right types of causes, non-obvious causes. So we wanna be able to look at all of the different things that could be part of a causal cascade that lead to, leads to what's going on and then be able to do data analysis across the whole thing. So imagine in the future that we start getting the ability to do diagnostics much less expensively, much more easily across many more biometrics more accurately, and then be able to interpret what those mean across this kind of complex causation model. And then the machine you're talking about is actually an AI system, not like a sentient AI, but a combinatorial AI that can um, process, you know, a tremendous amount of data against a, in a causal ontology that's ever evolving 
and actually, you know, be able to help doctors, physicians, you know, whomever identify specifically what's going on in terms of the pathological cascades and in terms of the kinds of things that could be the up line causes of those pathological cascades and then be able to reference for every pathway that's involved what the best current therapeutic technologies are and then what the right order of operations and the right synergy of those technologies are to actually be able to address what's going on for someone. Well, that sounds like the most complicated thing I've ever heard in my life. Dr. House at scale. (laughs) So I'm I'm glad you're working on this instead of me. Uh, so what a really good diagnostician does is they do this. They factor thinking through causation more complexly. It's just, it's beyond what any individual human can do and we want it to be widely available. And so that can be done through technology. Yeah, that's great. Um, do you consider yourself a human or do you consider yourself technology? I think that's a, False dichotomy. <laughs> you can be both. Um, okay, so so talking about causation, one of the things that that I've explored is the is illness happening in the body as a sign, right? What's the you know like we, we've all heard the stories of somebody gets cancer and they've um, you know, and then they quit their job and go live their life purpose and, and then forget about the cancer. The cancer goes into remission and, you know, it's kind of like it was a wake-up call, right? So, and I, I know that a part of your genius, cross-contextualizing your genius, uh, is, is you've got the scientific background and then you've also got the shamanic background and the philosophy. And so, so what are your thoughts on you know, the difference between biomarkers and, and chemicals and, and the environment creating an illness and the, the, the um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mind, the, the psychosomatic reasons that, that, that it, the, 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 the markers in our dreams that are here to wake us up or remind us to pay attention to, to our body. What, what, what are your thoughts on all that? Let's talk about the environment and the psyche because they're both very interesting things that are not well enough addressed in how we think of medicine usually. So on the environment side, if we have agricultural processes where that deplete topsoil and deplete trace minerals in topsoil, so no matter uh, what people are eating and if they're eating well, they are getting decreased trace mineral uh, density from an evolutionary environment. Factoring, factoring the trace minerals in the soil, factoring the microbiome in the soil, factoring the uh, hybridized seeds, you know, so many things. Do you, do you think, real quick, just uh, on, on this topic, are, yeah. do GMOs contribute to uh, loss of um, the nutrients? And, and what, do you, what do you think about that, just as a quick aside? I wouldn't address it as a whole category. I would say we could get into each one, but... Yes, that is a real potential, and and not, but it's not just GMOs. Even hybridizing crops uh, affects, right. you know, as we're breeding for more sugar or more, you know, fruiting. We're also breeding for less of some things that might have been very relevant parts of, you know, our evolutionary relationship with those plants. But as you look at having something like mineral and microbiome deficiency ubiquitously in mass, 
or then you look at environmental toxicity, everything from the environment of inside my house where my, my paint and my flooring all have high VOC output, volatile organic compound output, where most of those VOCs are either uh, carcinogens or neurotoxins or endocrine disruptors. And then, you know, you go outside and whether we're talking about from coal plants or from cars or from so many sources, the, you know, ubiquitous kinds of environmental toxicity where we can run mother's breast milk, run toxicology on it in the United States and find hundreds of distinct petrochemicals in mother's breast milk. And you think about what's happening to the babies that are evolving in that. Right. And that's not just people who live in, in the center of industrial zones. That's everybody. And so when you think about a world where the way we've done infrastructure has deficiency and toxicity and because of things like MRSA and pesticide resistant and fungicide resistant bugs, weird mutated pathogens in mass. Can you, this becomes a deep question. Can you have optimized people in a highly damaged biosphere? Wow. And yeah. the answer, no, right? So the, f- the future of medicine has to be the future of everything too. Oh, that's good. And so, you know, we'll, we haven't even spoke to the psychology side yet, which is individual, but it's also systemic. If you have a macro economy where people are fundamentally stressed out about money and surviving, and you're asking what's the effect of psychology and stress on health, it's significant, right? Yeah. For so many kinds of degenerative disease. So is part of the future of healthcare a better macroeconomic system? Has to be. Yeah. If you have a macroeconomic system you know, political systems that cause war. War is not good for health. And neither, <laughs> is in, neither is industrial process that causes environmental externality because there is no externality on a tiny biosphere floating through outer space where everything is interconnected with everything else. And so ultimately the future of medicine, what we're talking about is the future of human wellness is that we are fundamentally interconnected with everything else happening on the biosphere and any place where we're externalizing harm, it's not really external. We just aren't calculating the cause and effect of it. So we can talk about the future of medicine from the point of view of working just on individuals, even if they're within an environment that is actually a cause of pathology itself, but we have to then go beyond that and say, how do we have the environment, the mac, you know, individual homes and then also macro environments be a cause for regeneration rather than for ill health. And it, it really does involve nothing less than fundamental redesign of civilization from scratch, from a infrastructure level and a political socioeconomic level. And that's exactly what we're doing at rise. That's it. Yep. That's good. That's good. Okay. So that's I know we don't, I know we don't. Psychology oh. oh yeah. 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 Go ahead. That, do people's brains and bodies af- and imbalances in hormones, neurochemistry, et cetera, affect their psyches? Absolutely. Do imbalances in people's psyches from the way they allocate meaning and what they focus on and their definition of success and identity, uh, does that affect their physiology? Absolutely. Uh, can we reduce mind to brain? It's very problematic to try. And but it's, the, it's kind of a given within the way we think about science because science is a, is a philosophic system. It's a method of knowing, right? It's an epistemology, but it's based on measuring stuff. So it can only understand measurable third-person stuff. And consciousness is not 
independently measurable third person stuff. It's first person stuff. Yeah. And so it's fundamentally outside the domain of science. So all science can do is measure the neural correlates of consciousness. What is someone's EEG doing when they describe they're experiencing something? But that is, might be a neural correlate. And there's a, a lot that we need to say about how to even infer properly. But that, that's not first person experience, right? And so we could have a deeper philosophic conversation around ultimately what is the nature of the real? Does, does physicality emerge from consciousness? Does consciousness emerge from complex neural networks? Do they co-arise in some kind of structured panpsychism? But what we, what we can say without getting into all that right now is that people can do different things psychologically that affect their health. And the placebo study is a classic example, right? The placebo right. is thinking they're going to get well and feeling correspondingly less worried and more hopeful and then getting some degree of improvement symptomologically or, or pathophysiologically. And then you're like, but if the body's trying to optimize health all the time, why wouldn't it have done that anyways? And it's because the chemicals that mediate feeling. That's a actually great question. Yeah, but it's because if you feel shitty, anxious, angry, whatever, that that emotion is neurochemically and you know hormonally mediated, and what just happens to be very interesting is that most of those emotions are sympathetically mediated, which actually does not support the regenerative processes of the body, and when someone relaxes, feels more hopeful, and then feels better that can support parasympathetic nervous system engagement and physiologic regeneration. And there's, there's a lot of actual physiologic pathways that are involved in people's emotional and cognitive experience. And so um, this is why I would say psychology by itself is not adequate because someone can have physiologic disorders. That they're not going to psychotherapy away or meditate away. And Medicine by itself is not adequate because the complexity of the information processing that's happening inside of someone's consciousness is not reducible to gross neurochemicals. Great answer. Great answer. Do we lose Alex? Alex? Hey there, buddy. I think we lost him. Um, anyway, you and I are still here, and I'm in a Costa Rica hurricane. Um, he's on a landline in Santa Monica. Um, so my question to you, so I, I, I know we've got to go here in a few minutes. Um, I want to hear, I want to hear two things. I want to hear quickly about your, your sleep habits. Um, I, I, I thought about, and I tried a long time ago to do polyphasic sleep. It sounds like that's not quite what you're doing. You just have a, is it just a backward sleep, uh, cycle? Yeah, I mean, this is nothing particularly interesting. Uh, there are kind of sleep hacking techniques like polyphasic that some people do that I have done in the past. But I have, uh, since the earliest I can remember in childhood, been nocturnally oriented. And uh, while I have forced that schedule into a diurnal schedule for world purposes a number of times, um, it always uh, is more natural for me to be on a nocturnal schedule and my, my actual clarity of thinking and productivity and all like that is best during the quietest hours. Um, and so I, it seems that there 
some of it just might be preference, but it also seems that there might be uh, some groups of people who, for whatever reasons, have different circadian rhythms. Wow. That's so cool. I mean, I, I've thought about this and, you know, especially when I was looking into polyphasic sleep, like there's nobody texting you, calling you, messaging you. Like my phone's blowing up the whole, the whole day when I'm, uh, the whole during the day. Right. And so at night you just get to focus and, and work your magic without the distractions. This is why I love it. I, I have actually been here the whole time. I, we are using a new system and I couldn't find the unmute button. <laughs> uh, so I finally found it. Daniel, I had a question for you. Um, yeah. How can, how can I get smarter? Um, well, smarter is a word I would want to dive into a little bit, whether you mean increased short-term memory or long-term memory or speed of memory or focus or attention or more knowledge or all, all every way that I can get smarter by every measure. I want to, to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is, this is the neurohacking space, right? And so there are uh, chemical approaches. Uh, the whole field of nootropics and brain nutrients and smart drugs are all about exactly this, how to be able to, uh, hack biochemistry and neurochemistry for uh, affecting cognition either as a whole or very specific cognitive processes. There's also, you know, TDCS, TMS, different forms of, you know, transcranial stimulation that uh, people will use, transcranial lasers to try and hyperclock ATP in particular regions of their brain. Um, there are uh, microbiome solutions to kind of increase the normal healthy neurotransmitter output that might be decreased in their gut. So there's a lot of like, I would say biochemical solutions. There are future solutions that are not available yet, but in process that are things like, you know, CRISPR genomic solutions that actually change genetic predispositions towards brain function. Um, there's obviously brain computer interface uh, technologies in process. Um, and this is all kinds of things on the physiologic side and then on the information processing kind of on the software side, um, there's a lot one can do there. So I would say, um, the more one learns about any domain and consciously thinks about the cross applicability of that, like, why is this domain the way that it is? thinking through everything else you know, does this commensurate with the rest of my knowledge, making an interconnected database where you don't have arbitrary subject delineations, apply what you know from thermodynamics to biologic systems and gain interesting insights, right, from, from different kinds of systems. And then the larger just net database of knowledge you have and the more interconnected that knowledge set is, the more kind of insights you will have for lateral application to any new topic that comes when you think about, even if I don't know this topic, well, I know a lot about universe surrounding that topic that can have cross applicability and then also frameworks for thinking. So studying systems thinking and uh, things like integral methodology and uh, com complexity and critical thinking where one actually has better abilities to vet if things are true or not quickly, to know all of the perspectives necessary to assess a particular situation well, and then how to synthesize those perspectives. The, you know, actually studying epistemology, studying the processes of thinking and knowing is very useful. 
Wow. Cool. So now with your... Thank you. And thank you very much. Now, I with... didn't say there. The basics are make sure you sleep enough because you'll lose cognitive ability very quickly if you're not sleeping enough. Make sure that you eat well. Make sure that you exercise. Make Drink sure that your water. blood sugar is stable. All of the basics of a healthy physiology so that you actually have healthy brain and information processing. Um, make sure that you you know, meditation and the right kinds of psychotherapy in life that you can actually focus well uh, and that you have a brain that is not over anxious or over stressed out. You know, these, these are all different things. So, you know, what we're actually working to do at Neurohacker Collective is kind of vet all of the different types of neurotechnology that can help cognitive optimization. And on the physiologic side, and on the learning and uh, you know psychological side, vet all of the processes, techniques, technologies, and say which ones move what kinds of metrics for what kinds of people involving what kinds of pathways. And then once vetting those, how do we synthesize all of those partial answers to be able to then make available the, the best of human knowledge with progressively more personalization and customization to each person. So, you know, to just make it kind of simple, say someone was asking, I mean, asking about how to become smarter is a very broad thing. We could kind of dive into uh, specific subsets, but for, for illustration purposes, say someone wants to address anxiety. Well, how much of their anxiety is physiogenic and how much is psychogenic? And then of the psychogenic stuff, if someone was not anxious as a kid and then they had kind of acute adult trauma that led to PTSD or someone that was always anxious from kind of early childhood attachment theoretic structures, even though those are both psychogenic, they, they actually don't lend themselves equally well to the same kinds of psychotherapy. And on the physiogenic side, anxiety from a gut brain axis disorder that needs microbiome processing or from mild head injury or from a genetic methylation disorder or from excitotoxicity from neurotoxins like again those are all real uh, causes of pathology and they need addressed differently so we can just say like i've got a hammer so everybody is a nail everyone should do breathing techniques so they should all do vipassana or they should all take a benzodiazepine and we'll get some effect. Mm -hmm. It'll be everybody on a bell curve. If we want to put everybody on the front end of a customized bell curve, we have to be able to assess what are all the things that could be involved in what they're looking for. How do we assess what's actually going on for them and see where the greatest lift is going to occur? Okay. So now, so your product, uh, Qualia, is that how you say it? Yeah. I'm so excited to, uh, get my first shipment. Um, how does this how does this actually affect the brain and what like what what are some things that people notice when they first start taking it like what is what are some things i have to look forward to um so quality is the first product that uh neurohacker collective as an organization has made available recently brought to the market we have uh many other products in the kind of um, biochemical nutraceutical space that are in development, not currently on, on the market, including uh, more personalized versions of qualia. Um, and then also things in other areas of neurotech. But uh, this was something that was able to 
address a specific need we were interested in, which is when you see that there are something like $15 billion a year in uh, energy drink sales and something like estimated $5 billion last year in off-label Adderall sales for people using it as a smart drug, so many other smart drugs like that, and this kind of exponential rise of desire for increased productivity in a world where people feel both more demand and more things competing for their attention and damaging their focus. And you either have kind of some vitamin herbal solutions that don't really do anything obvious for people, or you have things like some of these, you know, either excessive amounts of stimulant or um, off-label pharmaceuticals that can do something, but oftentimes it's a very partial result with pretty meaningful side effects. We wanted to see, can we actually increase elements of cognitive capacity uh, neurochemically in a way that had a much more broad set of cognitive benefits where we were not just increasing focus through a dopaminergic process, but we were addressing attention span and concentration and speed of memory and verbal fluency and digit span and you know all of the different sub aspects of cognitive capability along with the emotional traits that need to come along like uh, emotional resilience and uh, you know the kind of drive necessary to follow through and not procrastinate so we were, we were looking at kind of cognitively modeling when people want to take when people are seeking cognitive enhancement what are they really seeking and they're seeking the ability to go into creative, productive flow states where their full cognitive capacity is available uh, more readily, being able to go into those states. So we modeled what are those states from a cognitive point of view. And then we looked at what are all of the physiologic systems that mediate each of those functions that we know of and what can we do to uh, support and enhance the function of those underlying systems. And so qualia was, you know, a number of years of refinement and development specifically intended to do that, to support the underlying systems that mediate those kind of creative productive flow states and to do so in a way that is not only causing some immediate effect, but is also in the, it's supporting the body's own regulatory processes rather than overriding them. So that rather than leading to dependency, it's leading to increased system resilience even after someone stops using it. Great. Cool. It must feel really good to having been worked working on this for so long to have it complete and, and people benefiting from it already. I've heard a lot about it. Um, what are some of the other things that, that you're working on that, that we can look forward to? Uh, well, if you can talk about it. The next handful of things that are likely able to come out are going to be um, more personalized versions of qualia where people are you know, seeking a similar goal, right? They're seeking increased cognitive clarity and availability to create great work uh, you know, while having uh, good states of human experience. Um, but being able to address more different kinds of physiology types. So we're working on customization, which doing that at scale is tricky, but we're, uh, we're getting close. And we're also working on support for uh, 
other goals like sleep and calmness and fun, weirder things like meditation and lucid dreaming support. Oh yeah. Um, cool. Let's do that. Then, <laughs> I'll take, I'll take one of those too. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, there, there, we have to separate what is interesting scientifically and what is doable from a regulatory process. So, you know, there's a tremendous body of data supporting psychedelic assisted psychotherapy as actually being uniquely capable of addressing certain kinds of issues more quickly than anything else. And it's very silly that we still have the regulatory process around it. We do, it is not good law. Um, but obviously we have to work in what we can do both from a scientific and a regulatory point of view. Daniel, I wish we could talk longer. Uh, this is almost all the time we have. I have one more question for you. Yeah, please. Uh, we, we end each show in a similar way. We ask our guests to give our listeners three things that they can do uh, related to the show. So in your case, what are three ways that people can improve their intelligence, their health, or their ability to engage in citizen science? Perhaps, perhaps one of each. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so a good way to improve your health and intelligence that this is not going to be novel, but hopefully if we've developed any rapport over the conversation, I can add to what one knows about it is uh, sleep well and enough. Uh, it's the more we study sleep, the more profound its effects on cognition and physiology are memory consolidation is almost exclusively happening during slow wave sleep, delta sleep. And if someone's not getting enough slow wave sleep, not only are there physiologic effects and uh, the body does so much of its antioxidant and anti-inflammation and et cetera work then, but memory consolidation is, is very limited. Um, and that how, affects- much, how much is enough sleep? How do we know? This is genetically different for different people and then even for the same people, if they have things going on with their physiology or how much they're working out or that what their stress loads are, it'll all be different. Uh, for most people, uh, this is in the eight hours of uninterrupted uh, sleep that's ideal. Some people need less than that. And if someone has something going on with their physiology or they're under a lot of strain, working out very hard, they might need more than that. Age is a factor. Um, but a way that you can know is that you wake up feeling refreshed and have good energy throughout the day. And if you have to wake up to an alarm, still tired and are tired throughout the day, then there might be other things going on as well. But we would like to see the people not waking up to an alarm tired. Um, and then especially stimulants like caffeine are not universally bad for people. There's actually good research showing that many t- in many cases they're healthy and longevity yeah. supporting but using stimulants in place of sleep is bad for you. And this is what leads to adrenal burnout. Um, and so here's one thing I would say for intelligence and psychological well-being and health and everything is reprioritize sleep. So that's one. Mm. Um, two, there are so many you know, things I could say here, but um, study how to, how to learn. I would say, read a book on systems theory, read some stuff on complexity, read some things on epistemology, read, you know, play with integral philosophy and see if I would say for every hour invested in learning how to learn, then everything else that you're learning is working through better frameworks and it has a over time exponential positive. So um, I'll call that number two. 
Okay, and also for integral philosophy, do you recommend Ken Wilber as the guy, the go-to guy? That's the starting point. And this is not that someone's necessarily going to be called to all of it or agree with all of it. Ken did a major synthesis work. The quadrants came from uh, Jürgen Habermas. The holons came from Arthur Kessler. Uh, developmental psychology came from, you know, Kohlberg and Graves and so many people. So he he identified really good meta theories or meaningful at least insightful meta theories and brought a number of them together to be able to look at things like um human development and so it is it's an insightful place to look at a number of meaningful meta theories together um and a brief history of everything is a good lay introduction to it and then one can go further in different places and there will be some stuff that sounds kind of mystical pseudoscience-y and that's okay i would again just look at the underlying philosophic structures um and maybe number three now i will say if someone is learning how to learn but then they're not actually learning content it won't work you also then have to be learning content like whatever fields you're passionate about study them more allocate more of your life to studying them and then as you're studying them you actually get an example of applying those thinking models um and so it's the combination of those that makes a huge difference and then number three i would say uh in you know just a a, a straight kind of plug for what we're doing go check qualia. out the website yeah i mean if qualia calls to you uh then by all means check it out and either way there's a lot of information on neurohacker.com and every day more is getting up there about how cognition works and the chemistry that affects it and uh over the next little while we're planning on robusting that to be a very meaningful uh knowledge source for people so uh awesome it cool. So if you're if you're able to, so I'm pulling up a bunch of new tabs on my on my uh, desktop as you're throwing out all these examples um, of things to study. If you were to recommend one book, like your all time favorite book that just blew you away, um, that was also consumable for uh, the average person, what would that be? It's an impossible question. Uh, pick a book any book it, it's like asking what my favorite nutrient is where you can die of nutrient deficiency across so many different nutrients um, I, I don't but, think it's that serious <laughs> but the first book that uh, popped to mind is uh, Critical Path by Buckminster Fuller oh great okay cool alright I'm going to get it on my Kindle so thank you very much, Daniel Schmachtenberger of the Neurohacker Collective. This is our show. For, uh, and Ben, I admire your courage going ahead with the show, even with a hurricane. The very first landfall of a hurricane on Costa Rica since 1851. So this is a historic <laughs> show, and I, and I think it's very fun that we've done it. I've really enjoyed this. I learned yeah, a lot. I hope people listening. Um, uh, we'll get something tremendous out of it. Uh, thank you both and good night. Thank you, Bye, everybody. Have a good one. Bye.